You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Once upon a time, there were two boys named Jacob and Esau. From the moment of their birth, these twins had a fierce rivalry. This rivalry caused much strife in their family and continued on through their children long after they were dead. 840 years before the time of Jesus, Esau's family had multiplied and become the nation of Edom and Jacob's family grew into the nations of Israel and Judah. Just as Jacob and Esau fought with each other, Edom grew in power and planned to overtake Judah with the help of the Philistines and the Arabians. The Edomites and their allies invaded Jerusalem and they cast lots to decide which parts of Jerusalem belonged to whom. The king of Judah, King Jehoram, was robbed of his belongings and his family was murdered. By sacking Jerusalem, Edom had fought against God. And so, God called forth a prophet named Obadiah to speak about the Edomites and the consequences of their proud and violent ways. So we are starting a new series, um, Little Books with a Big Punch. We're going to be going through some Uh, rarely read and rarely discussed books of the Old Testament, the prophets. And so Sarah Rolke is up on the stage with me today, and we are going to read the entire book of Obadiah, so you can tell your friends and family. They won't know how long this book is. I promise that you read a whole book of the Bible today. All right? Cool. So we're going to jump into this. Sarah's going to read some, then I'm going to read some. I encourage you. It is uh, 21 verses. It's a longer passage than we normally read to to just kind of dial in. If you need to close your eyes, uh, do that. Um, Put your phones down and let's hear the word of God clearly today. This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up there, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and you build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves come at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will run against you. They will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you and you won't even know about it. At the time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest of warriors of Timon will be terrified and everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. 
Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in their terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their time of trouble. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all the godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All of your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on the holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all the nations will drink and stagger in despair from history. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will become a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem, exiled in the north, will return home and resettle the towns of Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom, and the Lord himself will be king. Obadiah 1, 1 through 21. Thanks, Sarah. The word of God for the people of God. So I didn't on purpose give Sarah all the difficult words to pronounce, I promise you. That's although I just noticed that's the way it came down. How many of you have biblical names? Raise your hand that you are aware of anyway. Okay, how many of you were named Obadiah? Right, how many of you have ever named a child Obadiah, a pet Obadiah? Raise your hand. Okay, I didn't think so. Not a very popular name, not a very popular book, uh, not a very often read or preached or taught on book of the Bible. But what we're going to find, if you haven't figured out already from the reading of Obadiah, it has an incredible amount of relevance today. For God's people today, there is an incredible amount of insight into the heart of a human being that has the ability to become indifferent and to become hostile toward people that we grow over time in our own lives and in generation after generation in our nations, in our ethnic groups, in our people groups, we grow to see people no longer as our family. And so many times in scripture, including Obadiah, God just turns that upside down on its head and says, you may not see these people as your family, but I see them as your family. You may not trace your roots back to an origin that you share with them, but that is your shared origin. That connects you together. Obadiah talks in the beginning a lot about pride and how the 
Edomites were entrenching themselves in a very geographically strategic location of the day. Let's put the map up on the screen and, and you can kind of see the kingdom of Edom down there on the right. The king's highway went through there at the time. It was a very strategic financial and military area of the world at the time. And, and the kingdom of Edom, as you heard from the video, were the people that were descended from Esau. If you remember from the story in Genesis, Jacob and Esau were brothers and, and things went really bad with them. And, and Esau's descendants end up down here and, and they become the kingdom of Edom. And, and the uh, descendants of Jacob become the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, which were one kingdom now divided at this time. I'm going to refer to that as Israel for the rest of our talk here today so that I don't have to continue to say Israel and Judah. But we've got the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Esau, warring against each other, holding hostility toward each other. And then ultimately, when Jerusalem gets ransacked, when God brings judgment on his own people for correction and redemption, the long-lost brothers, the long-lost ancestors of Jacob stand by and they take a position of indifference and even hostility toward God's people. There's a couple of judgments I want to look at um, in particular. And you heard some of those statements that I made. You should not. You should not. Edom, you should not. And I've summed up those many you should nots into a couple. First one, you should not have deserted your relatives in Israel during their time of great need. They needed you and you turned your back on them. The second judgment that we could summarize, you should not have gloated over their destruction of your relatives, making yourself rich at their expense. Not only did you look the other way, not only did you pretend it wasn't happening, you jumped in and you mocked and you gloated. You had fun at their expense and then you benefited financially at their expense. This is unconscionable, God is telling the nation of Edom. Now, before you jump to today and wonder, well, how does that apply to me? I would ask you, have you ever looked the other way when somebody in your life in close proximity relationally to you was suffering? I have to be honest with you. This is something I became a Christian 10 years ago. And even before I knew Jesus Christ and I understood the nature of God, I understood this about my nature and it was one of the things I disliked about myself. And that was how easy it was for me when someone near me was suffering, or I became aware of somebody's distress to just look the other way, to just find a way to protect myself, keep myself comfortable. You've heard about the bubble. And I've got to have this relational, emotional bubble, and I got to make sure and keep even people that God sees as my family. I need to be able to keep them out of that bubble. There's a few examples in my life of where I've had this kind of bubble up within me. And so I'll open up a window for you here and see if maybe any of this type of thing applies to you. So I played basketball when I was in high school and I loved basketball. I, I did it from a very early age on through. And when I hit, I was really good when I was young. And then when I hit high school, I kind of peaked and everybody started passing me. Have you ever, ever had one of those type of talents or skills or attributes and, and you're just seeing people get better and better and you're not. And so by the time I got to varsity at Ozark, I was, I was sitting the bench. I was like one of the first guys off the bench. And I remember anytime I would see somebody playing poorly or I would see somebody get injured, I would like, I'd get, I get to go in. Okay. And I would think I was 17, 18 year old kid. I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with me? Do I really want Jason to stink it up? So I get to play. 
You see where I'm going? Do I really want Michael to roll an ankle so that I get to go in? Now, that seems like an innocent type of, you know, type of emotion, a type of response, but is it? Is it innocent? That kind of thing allowed to foster within us can bring us to a place where we can become indifferent about some pretty, pretty difficult things. Well, now, fast forward, I won't say how many years because that'll age me from high school. But now I get to get up here and I get to preach and teach the word of God. And that's an exciting time for me. I've only been doing it a few years till to this point. And I have to be honest, it's a struggle for me on a podcaster when Jason or Jake or Bob are preaching to just listen and not go, man, they're stinking it up this week. That's going to make me look good next Sunday. And then I'll think to myself the same thought from all those years before on the bench. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why would I not want them to excel? Why would I want to gain some type of internal advantage or from the people who listen to us, some type of accolades or applause or affirmation at someone else's expense? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me is I have this Edomite spirit that rares up and is willing to become indifferent and not only that, but hostile toward those around me that might benefit me when they fall. Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to celebrate when someone falls down, when they mess up, and when they blow it? I'll give you a national example, um, because it comes from my past. I have a past of sin and sexual sin and addiction. And so how many of you remember the Tiger Woods scandal? I raise your hand. Yeah, so he had the sex addiction and blew up his whole life and his, basically his career. There's some of the articles and all of these on every newspaper cover. And again, I remember thinking to myself, wasn't just me. Even the mighty can fall. What's wrong with me? And you, you would watch the TV shows and you would read the newspaper articles and there was just this, you know, this kind of indifference toward Tiger as a human being, just like, ugh, how could he do that? And what he did was horrible. What he did was unconscionable. What he did was destructive. What he did was evil. But should we step in to that reality? We don't have a personal relationship with Tiger Woods. But as Christians, should we not step into that reality with a heart broken over the forces of evil and the addictive tendencies that led him to do the things that he did and hope some way for redemption? even if there had to be some consequences and some judgment that there's redemption at the end of that story? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us as a people? John Piper is a pastor author who I don't totally agree with all of his theology by any stretch, but I came across this quote looking up this idea of indifference, and it really was powerful for me. He said, nations, adults, and little children, (laughs) nations, adults, and little children have this in common. Apart from the grace of God, we all tend to derive pleasure from another person's failures because it soothes our inadequacies and it magnifies our successes. Ouch. You see, spiritual maturity, whenever the formation of Jesus Christ begins to become a reality in our life, we no longer need to elevate ourselves to ascend in our seeing who we are as a person, our identity, 
we no longer need to further ourselves in our circles of relationships, in our own heart and life, in our relationship with God on the backs of someone else's failures, on the backs of someone else messing up. That's a mark of spiritual maturity. And it doesn't always happen. In the nation of Edom, it happened with swords and it happened with chariots and it happened with looting. In us, most of our examples, it happens right in here. And it happens right in here. And we're taking the kingdoms of our people that we love down so that we might benefit. And indifference and, and hostility are two things that the Edomites were struggling with. And I, I, I really felt like at first that indifference led to hostility, but now I'm not... I'm, feeling like indifference and hostility are two sides of the same coin. And they just play off of each other. You know, Jesus said, um, before we uh, jump too quickly and say that this isn't really us because we aren't taking military or physical violence toward those we are indifferent to. You know, Jesus has those difficult teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And in one of them, he says, you have heard that it was said to not commit murder. Well, I'm I'm going to stick with that. Let's not commit murder. Uh, But I'm going to say, any of you that hold anger in your heart have already committed murder there in your heart. What? Anger equals murder? Did Jesus just say that? Yes. Jesus is telling us that if we allow anger to foster indifference, hostility in our hearts, we can become Edomites in today's world. And here's what an Edomite does. It looks at a people group and it depersonalizes them and it dehumanizes them. I felt like we saw this play out in 2014 whenever the Darren Wilson, Michael Brown thing went down up in uh, Ferguson, St. Louis. Raise your hand if you remember that. I don't know how much background. Okay, yeah. Big national story, right? Right here in our state. We're known for meth and the Darren Wilson, Michael Brown. So that's great. Uh, But I was watching the news at the time. I had basically turned off the news since I became a Christian in general. But I was was gripped by this. And so I was watching it. And I felt like there was this rush from people on this side. And I'm not making a racial or political point with this today. But a rush on the Darren Wilson side saying, well, you know, we need all the facts. You know, we need to slow down. We need to not rush to judgment. We, you know, we need to really wait it out. And then I saw the people on the other side, on the Michael Browd side, get Darren Wilson down to the town square and hang him high. But I, you know what I didn't hear? Except for the voice of a few prophetic pastors, which were really good to hear, but except for a very minor few pastors, I didn't hear very many people say, man, a boy died and an officer's life is forever altered And that shouldn't have happened. That didn't have to happen. That is a tragedy. And can we take a day at least to mourn that? Can we take a day as a nation to just set aside positions and set aside points that we want to try and make and just mourn the fact that somebody's life was lost and another's life was forever altered? This message of Obadiah has personal application and implications for us, and it has national application and implications for us. As a nation, we are working this cycle out in our national scene and in our national politics of depersonalizing and dehumanizing 
the people who we don't agree with. We no longer can see the people on the other side of the aisle as family. And here's what Obadiah would tell us. You can disagree, but you cannot dehumanize and depersonalize a person who I see as your family. Family does not do that. You should not treat family as if they aren't family. Well, there's a, a guy that Bob came across. He's preaching over in the sanctuary today, and a guy named Ahmed. Let me see, make sure I get his name right. Ahmed Hai, and his uh, kind of stage name is Nine, and put a picture up there of him. Nine is a part of the Shout community. Uh, they speak out, and he's a poet, and they speak out against injustice. And what Bob came across and shared with me was how Nine has this four pointers that identify who true family is. And I love this because I want to go through it real quick so we can paint a picture for ourselves what it looks like to be a true family. Nine says the first is that families keep you out of trouble. You see, Edom did not keep Israel out of trouble. They didn't step in when the Assyrians came, when the Philistines were coming. They were getting invaded from multiple areas. And Edom was on the southeast side, strategically located to step in and help Israel out and they did just the opposite. What this looks like for us today is not letting each other fall into destructive behaviors. Like one of the things that happens whenever you commit to a covenant community, we're gonna have membership class today. I love the fact that what we're doing here on campus is when you become a covenant member, we wanna make sure that you're in accountable relationships so that when them, who are doing relationship with you and you start to do things in your life that are bringing harm and destruction to yourself and others, we've got to have a conversation about that. We've got to step in and we've got to help each other, even and especially when we have to share things that don't feel so good to hear or to say. Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Always love that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The second thing nine says is family prioritizes you over money. You heard very clearly from the text that they were indifferent. So they looked the other way. They were hostile militarily, but then they went a step further and they looted and they gained financially from Israel's fall. Now, what does that look like in America today? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like corruption on Wall Street, the rich on subprime mortgages and hedge funds just getting loaded off the backs of the poor. It looks like payday loans where profiteers are benefiting from the desperation of the poor. And here, I won't just pick on the rich. It looks like the poor who are in cycles of chronic poverty, continuing to loan money that they don't have to each other, keeping each other in chronic cycles of poverty. And if you've never been a part of working with and helping people lift up out of that cycle, it is devastating to watch. And they don't think that they're putting money over relationship. They think they're putting relationship over money, but it's very distorted and very destructive. The next thing, family can disagree and stick together. Jacob and Esau actually did re reunite in the Genesis narrative, but after that, it didn't take long, right? For the generations to start separating again, to start dividing and fighting against each other. And so what we see today and what has been true throughout human history is that if we're family, we figure out how to disagree and still be a family. 
I'll say that again. When we are family, we figure out how to disagree and still be a family. I have a very blended family. It would take too long to unpack how blended. And I can tell you, after a year and a half of marriage, that is very, very difficult to do. By the grace of God, it can be done. But you have to make a commitment to figure it out and realize we aren't going to agree on everything, but we're family. And family trumps disagreement. The next thing, family respects you. So what nine says is we're going to give each other respect regardless. Edom did not respect Israel by any stretch. And I'm actually going to disagree a little bit with nine here. I believe uh, that there is a distinct difference between honor and respect. And I believe honor is given, respect is earned. And I think in family, we honor each other. We honor the fact that we are each image bearers of God with tremendous capacity for good and unfortunately for evil, but tremendous capacity to love and to serve and to give and to not be indifferent when others suffer. So we honor each other. We honor that capacity that we each have and the imprint of God that we each have, and we allow respect to be built up over time. So the burning question through the centuries today that if you haven't figured it out yet is who is your family? Who is our family? I would almost guarantee you if I asked that question before the sermon and before the scripture was read today that the answers I would get would be the who's around the Thanksgiving dinner table answers, right? Parents, children, siblings, aunts, uncles, blood family, right? Nuclear family, that's what we would have said, right? Edom and Israel would have no way been sitting around a Thanksgiving table together if they had Thanksgiving. (laughs) They would no way have been sending Christmas cards to each other if they had Christmas cards. You have to understand that Edom and Israel in no way, shape, or form saw the other party as family at all. This would have been revolutionary. This would have been scandalous, the words that Obadiah was speaking to Edom and to Israel because they had become so entrenched against each other that the words of family in defining their relationship from a prophet of God would have been like, it would have taken them a while to even process what that meant. (laughs) No, that's the enemy, God. Obadiah, you might want to check back with God tonight in your prayers. Maybe we can revise this, right? Everybody needs an editor. No, Obadiah is saying, they're your family. Jesus in one account is in a house and he's teaching and there's, there's crowds and his family, his family can't get to him. And so the disciples are like, they're trying to get into your mom, brothers and sisters, trying to get in here to see you. And he says, who are my mother and who is my brothers and sisters? But those that hear the word of God and obey it. Scandalous, transformational, kingdom upside down teaching from God, from Obadiah all the way to Jesus, that we don't ignore our nuclear blood relations by any stretch. The scriptures don't teach that, but we've got to break out of the bubble that we get in about that and start seeing people as our family that we don't see currently as our family. There's some ministries here on campus that I'd like to highlight where that is happening, and it is a beautiful thing. Uh, There's Jobs for Life. We had our 11th session graduation this past Wednesday. Give it up for JFL. So 
Those are all of, the, all of the students and all of the champions. There were eight graduates this time, and so each of them had a champion. And then we have the life change plan, where on Sunday night, we graduated our first four. Hey, there we are. Bob Cassidy's way back in the dark there. I don't know. He's, maybe because he's always usually in the front of the stage, so he was trying to take a back seat. Uh, but those are the first graduates. It's a one-year discipleship program that we have people in recovery and addiction make it through. And those are our first four graduates. We have a faith and finances class uh, that helps people who are uh, really in the low-income reality understand how to handle their money in a godly way and how to handle money in financial institutions in a godly way. Now, how are these programs similar to what we're talking about today? Well, if you could go back to the the pictures from the JFL and the Life Change Plan, I can tell you because I know about each one of them personally that there are ethnic differences here. There are racial differences among those two graduating classes. There are socioeconomic, there are denominational, there are political, there are generational. There are differences. These aren't people that fit in this nice little neat demographic reality and relationship with each other. But because of the ministries that are happening on this campus, Edomites are being connected to Israelites and they're seeing each other as family. If you've never been to a Jobs for Life graduation, we announce them, they, there's four of them per year. I can't encourage you enough to go. Just listening to the testimonies of how two people that didn't even know each other and had all of those different differences in their life to that point, talk about this new relationship that they have. This relationship where the champion and the mentor decided, you know what, I can't be indifferent anymore to people who are suffering. I can't just look away. What the, wait, there's a ministry here on campus where I can not look away, but I can step in to the pain and the suffering and the distress and the dysfunction of somebody's life? Yes, sign me up. I, I want to lose the Edomite spirit, and I want to sign up, and I want to be a part of that. I wonder today whether you have an Edomite spirit that you struggle with. I know I do. I confessed a few of them before. Do you have an Edomite spirit that is just prone to protection, to safety, to comfort at the expense of those around you who need you and who God is calling you to serve and to love? Well, we've done some history, and so I want to go back to the history a little bit because it's rich in this particular story. If we could show the family tree, we've got Jacob and Esau back in the Genesis account, and the generations later, we've got Israel and Judah, and we've got Edom. That was the main context of the scripture today. Obadiah is speaking into that national reality. And then centuries later, here comes Jesus and Herod. You may not know this, but King Herod in the story who tried to kill Jesus, when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born, he put out the edict to kill all male children under the age of two. And this is when Jesus becomes a refugee and goes down to, goes down to Egypt. But King Herod was the one that sent out that order, and he was of Edomite blood. So here it keeps on going, right? The Edomite blood and the Edomite spirit is alive in Herod, and he attempts to take out King Jesus, and he fails. Keep that up for a little bit longer. Which part of the lineage of that family tree are you in today? Are you part of the lineage that goes down and to the left where King Jesus is defeating the Edomite spirit within you, the spirit of indifference and hostility? Or does the bondage of that centuries-long, generationally real 
spirit of indifference and hostility that made it through King Herod. Now the blood line of Edom, as God promised in the book of Obadiah, was wiped off. There are no Edomite people on the planet today. The last recorded um, Edomites we know of are about the first or second century AD. But do the Edomites not still live on in our spirits? They do. In many of us, the Edomite spirit is keeping us in a place of bondage toward truly understanding how to reach out and treat people in our life as if they were family. Well, I have a few applications for you today. Uh, The first, we mentioned some transformational ministries is if you are interested in becoming a mentor or a champion in Jobs for Life, the Life Change Plan, or Faith and Finances, um, just find a connection card back on the desk, fill that out, bring it to me, talk to Pastor Jason. Um, We are growing those ministries and need mentors and champions. And then the next uh, applications I have I want to read, and then I just want to leave us in a a place of about 30 to 45 seconds of silence and let you just kind of sit with the Holy Spirit and possibly war with, with the Edomite spirit that could be within you. Who are you indifferent toward that God sees as your family, but that you still don't? Who do you have inward or outward hostility toward that God is calling you to care about?